Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit Key Largo to take a ride on the African Queen. People love this boat, especially if they've seen the movie. If they haven't seen the movie, there's one thing for sure. When they take a ride on the boat, they will see the movie later. People just love this boat. We'll discuss 18th century maps of Florida. They bordered on on art uh, more than than an actual, you know, a a guide for for mariners. And we'll talk about Zora Neale Hurston's look at food. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Is something the matter, Mr. Allnut? Tell me. Nothing. Nothing you'd understand. I simply can't imagine what could be the matter. It's been such a pleasant day. What is it? Yes, Mr. Olnott? All this foolish talk about the Louisa going down the river. What do you mean? I mean, we ain't gonna do nothing of the sort. Of course we are. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. What an absurd idea. Lady, you got ten absurd ideas for my one. Based on the 1935 novel by C.S. Forrester, the classic 1951 film The African Queen stars Humphrey Bogart in his only Oscar-winning role as the rough boat captain Charlie Allnutt. Catherine Hepburn was nominated for her role as the proper Methodist missionary Rose Sayer. In the film, Rose and Charlie survive a dangerous voyage aboard a small steamboat called the African Queen. Today, the actual boat used in the film leaves a dock in Key Largo every two hours, taking history enthusiasts, movie lovers, and other sightseers on a trip down a canal, into the ocean, and back. Michael Hewitt pilots the African Queen for no more than six passengers per cruise. People love this boat, especially if they've seen the movie. If they haven't seen the movie, there's one thing for sure. When they take a ride on the boat, they will see the movie later. People just love this boat. I've had people go anywhere from, well, one guy actually got choked up while he was on board. I had uh, a couple that heard that the boat was operating down here, uh, and it was her birthday. He said, what do you want to do for your birthday? And she said, I want to go to Key Largo and ride the African Queen. So they came all the way from New Orleans just to ride this boat. I've had people come from all over the country just to ride this boat. So I I think I'm developing a little bit of tourism of my own here. In the film, The African Queen, a small steamboat with the same name is damaged on river rapids, shot at, and ultimately destroyed while being used as a makeshift torpedo against a German vessel at the beginning of World War I. Models and prop boats were used during filming to portray the damage, and the real African Queen survived. Michael Hewitt. They built a lot of prop boats and um, some mock-ups. What they blew up was actually done as a studio, probably very little of a real boat. The boat renamed the African Queen for the film was built in 1912 by the Abdallah and Mitchell shipyards in Great Britain. It was shipped to the Belgian Congo for use on the Ruki River and Lake Albert. 
The boat was originally named the Livingstone. It was a work boat. It helped the British East Africa Railway build trestles across the waters and hold freight, personnel, whatever, they, whatever was necessary. Real hard work boat. While scouting locations in Africa for the filming of The African Queen, director John Houston and producer Sam Spiegel saw the workboat Livingstone and decided it would be perfect for use in their movie. Lance Holmquist is owner of Calypso Water Sports and Charters, which operates the tours aboard The African Queen. It was actually for bridge engineers to go through Africa and find all the waterways, and then for the road surveyors to also do the same thing, but by road get you one, front, one side of the creek to the next, and then the engineers would look, well, we got some sand here, we got this and that, and they would observe what they had nearby. So if they had to uh, bring it in by bison, or if they could truck it, and how far, and so on and so forth. So the African Queen was built shallow and thin for that purpose. And, uh, you know, they could spin it around by hand, you know, with a couple of, a couple of long, long poles just to get it spinning so they could get to the other side of the creek. If there's a river, a bridge has to go over it, even if it's a small creek. So that's why she was uh, built. And the gent that did it, he actually owned the railway, uh, Livingston, and um, it was formally called the Livingston for that purpose and worked for 50 years, basically, the Belgium Congo. The African Queen is an adventure film. At the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Germans raid the mission village where Rose is working. Charlie helps her to escape on the African Queen, but they must evade German soldiers. Rose wants to use the boat as a torpedo to sink a German ship that is preventing British counterattacks in the area. Charlie reluctantly agrees to Rose's plan, and the two very different people become a couple while facing adversity together. On the way to fight the Germans, the African Queen is damaged while going over three rapids, is shot at by German soldiers, and Charlie is covered with leeches while trying to repair the boat. Come along by steam, we paddled and pushed and pulled this old boat along with the hook. What we ain't done up to now is get out and carry her. Looks like that'll come next. Lance Holmquist says that the famous scene from The African Queen where Humphrey Bogart is covered with leeches while trying to free the boat from mud and reeds is loosely inspired by actual events. It was the end of monsoon season that the captain took it and stuck it up in the reeds. Uh, eight months later, the river starts to rise again. The captain gets inside of the boat and uh, they're, they're trying to get it unstuck with oars and making these little water accesses so the boat will float again and uh, but the mud wouldn't let it go it was stuck you know and he had a couple of his mates bailing it out and it was just getting heavier with the monsoon rains so he jumped in the water and he's pushing it up and down to get the water to get up underneath it to release it and uh, while doing that it woke up every single bloodsucker around for miles and that's how that part with the uh, leeches got put into the movie. In the film, Charlie and Rose are captured before detonating their makeshift torpedo, but the German ship captain grants their last wish to be married before being executed. At the last minute, the unmanned African queen completes her mission, allowing Charlie and Rose to swim to safety.
Following the release of the African Queen in 1951, the boat retained its new name. It returned to service as a workboat in Uganda, East Africa in the 1950s and 60s until it was brought to America and purchased by Hal and Joyce Bailey. The Baileys offered seasonal river cruises aboard the African Queen in Oregon. In 1971, reporter Charles Corralt did a segment on the boat for the CBS Evening News. Pilot Michael Hewitt. There's a fella in Oregon, his name was Hal Bailey, and he heard the boat was sitting in California someplace, and he tracked it down, took it up to Oregon, and he found a boiler that was sitting behind a greenhouse, and I don't know where he found his steam engine, but he found a steam engine, and he put it on, and he was running trips up on the Deschutes River for about 10 years, and matter of fact, Charles Corralt uh, took a ride on this boat in 1971, um, but in 1980, Bailey brought it down to Florida because he wanted to run it year-round. Once he got it down here, uh, the Coast Guard told him, don't even put it in the waters. So he put it on a trailer and he put an ad in the paper. And that's when Jim Hendricks, who was building the Holiday Inn here at the time, he, um, he saw the ad and he went down, he went up and took a look at it and gave him a thousand dollars down and told me to think about it. Well, after a while, he thought about it long enough and told Bailey that he'd buy it if he could get it running. Well, Bailey brought it down to Key Largo, told him it could, it could run if they got 150 pounds of steam in it. So they walked around the boatyard and picked up all kinds of scrap wood and fired it up and she actually ran. So Jim bought it from him then for $65,000. He had to spend just about that much money on it to get it refurbed for the Coast Guard to be happy with him. Key Largo hotelier Jim Hendricks purchased the African Queen from Hal Bailey in 1982. Hendricks provided tours on the boat from the dock outside his Holiday Inn until the engine broke in 2001. He died in 2002 before the antique engine could be repaired. Hendrick's son leased the boat to Lance Holmquist, who was able to replace the engine of the African Queen by 2012 in time for the boat's 100th birthday. Holmquist says that maintaining the African Queen and keeping it operational is a labor of love. For instance, something like a bearing we have to make, something like a ring for the piston. Uh, we also have to get, you know, there's a guy in England that said he could make us a couple and uh, I ended up talking to a nuclear power plant that has deals with hardened steel and it it can only flex a little bit and unfortunately it broke while putting it back together again the engine so it ended up the first one was 500 bucks and the second one was 200 and the third one was 75 and the fourth one was 25. so i was like yeah give me four of them and uh, so if we have another problem like that we'll be able to deal with it and we'll just put these in a so it was little things like that. I mean, getting, a, getting something for a, a 120-year-old engine, because this is an 1896 Sisson, S-I-S-S-I-O-N engine. So it's hard to get parts. We have to make them, get real creative. Humphrey Bogart's son Steve has ridden the African Queen several times. Although she lived much of her life in Florida, Catherine Hepburn never visited the African Queen in Key Largo. Michael Hewitt. Old Jim Hendricks was in letter communication with her. I've read many of many of the letters, and she was very supportive, but she would never come down for a, for a ride. 
I think she was pretty much reclusive by then. Michael Hewitt remembers the first time he saw the African Queen, but he had no idea that he would become involved with preserving the film's legacy. The first time I saw this movie was many, many years ago. I was still a teenager, and um, um, yeah, I, I remember seeing the movie, and of course I thought it was a great movie, and you know, I always kept it in mind. Uh, since then, I've seen it many times, especially now that I'm um, on the job, so to speak, and uh, always trying to uh, uh, come up with some quotes from the movie. I love it. Hewitt does his part to present an authentic experience for tourists aboard the African Queen, sharing photos from the film. He dresses like Humphrey Bogart's character, particularly with his custom-made shirt. It's made of pillow ticking, and I spoke to the owner of the boat, and he used to sell these shirts. I asked him, where do I get a shirt? And he says, well, our seamstress died. He said, but it's just pillow ticking. So I looked online, and I found a lady in northern uh, Florida in the Panhandle, Mariana. Uh, she's a sutlery. She makes Civil War reproduction clothing. And I called her up, and she's called a southern seamstress. And I called her up and I says, can you make pillow ticking shirts? And she goes, uh, yeah. I said, you think you can make a shirt like Bogart wore in the African Queen? And she says, yeah. I asked her if she wanted a picture. She says, I've got the movie. Two weeks later, I got the shirts. With no rapids, leeches, or gunfire, the modern tour aboard the African Queen in Key Largo is much more sedate than the exciting adventure depicted in the film, although the scene where Rose pours Charlie's gin overboard is recreated by enthusiastic tourist volunteers. Even without the danger, passengers find the ride stimulating. Well, miss? Yes, Mr. Owner. How'd you like it? Like it? White water, rapid. I never dreamed. I don't blame you for being scared, miss, not one little bit. Ain't no person in their right mind ain't scared of white water. I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so stimulating. How's that, miss? I've only known such excitement a few times before. A few times in my dear brother's sermons when the spirit was really upon him. You mean you want to go on? Naturally. Miss, you're crazy. I beg your pardon? You know what would have happened if we'd come up against one of them rocks? But we didn't. I must say I'm filled with admiration for your skill, Mr. Allnut. Do you suppose after I've practiced steering a bit, that someday I might try? Miss, let me tell you something. Them rapids ain't nothing to watch out in front of us. On second thoughts, I wouldn't call them rapids at all. I can hardly wait. But, Miss... Now that I've had a taste of it, I don't wonder you love boating, Mr. Allnut. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, discover great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, take a moment to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Draw me a map that leads me back to you I don't know where to go, please tell me what to do Help me find the road you're on, I just need directions home Draw me a map that leads me back to you
Maps of Florida are some of the first representations of land that would become the United States. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, how long have people been making maps of Florida? Well, some of the earliest representations really go back to the early 16th century. In fact, uh, one of the first, and it's disputed, but one of the first uh, indications of a peninsula uh, within the Caribbean that we would consider Florida dates to about 1512. Uh, And then up through the uh, 1520s, 1530s, and and 1540s, after successive uh, expeditions into Florida, we see more and more maps of Florida uh, begin to emerge. And Florida as a peninsula, as a landform, this landmass of Florida, um, really begins to take shape. Uh, Now, if we look at some of the early 16th century maps today, uh, most people would say, well, it it sort of looks like Florida, um, which is true. You know, it's not an accurate geographic portrayal of the physical location location of the peninsula. Um, however, at the time, um, it was a fairly uh, detailed representation of how uh, Europeans understood the landmass of Florida, um, which at that time covered most of the uh, present-day southeastern United States would have been uh, considered Florida. Um, but, you know, when we talk about maps, we have to think about, okay, well, what is a map? You know, a map is really a, a collection of, of symbols and, and characters that uh, would represent a, a landform or an idea uh, in kind of a two-dimensional form. Uh, they're created just like any other primary source um, uh, for a particular audience uh, and through the, through the lens of a particular map maker or a cartographer, as they're officially known. Um, and oftentimes, especially in the uh, early 16th, 17th centuries, these maps were really a compilation of uh, firsthand eyewitness accounts, usually taken at different times, then compiled uh, back in Europe uh, in front of a cartographer, uh, then uh, translated into this two-dimensional uh, uh, symbol. And really, they, they bordered on, on art uh, more than, than an actual you know, a guide for, for mariners. Um, but that changed over time, and that evolved uh, over the course of the next few centuries as more and more people are, are coming to Florida, and this interest in, in understanding the geography of Florida uh, began, to, uh, began to grow. One of the earliest cartographers or surveyors of Florida was Bernard Romans, and you have some of his published works here. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Romans is, is, at least among the, the Florida history world, he's one of the best known of these um, early Florida history cartographers or, or surveyors. Uh, Romans first came to North America Sometime in the 1750s, uh, he was uh, actually born in the Netherlands, uh, was educated in, in England, uh, came to North America uh, during the uh, Seven Years' War. We know he was in Florida as early as, as somewhere around 1766, 1767, uh, and was engaged in the um, uh, profession of surveying. So he was traveling around the coastal region of Florida, around uh, the East Coast, and uh, eventually around the Gulf Coast of Florida. Um, and as he was surveying the topography of Florida, he was also taking detailed notes of the flora and fauna. So he kind of became one of these early uh, naturalists. Um, so he was a surveyor, he was a naturalist. Um, he later became a soldier. So during the American Revolution, uh, he was uh, sided with the, uh, the Patriot Army and actually fought um, at the uh, Battle of Ticonderoga, uh, with, uh, uh, was involved in some other famous uh, famous events during the uh, the American Revolution, came back to Florida. Eventually, all of these observations were compiled into 
what is now one of the, the best-known uh, primary sources from the late 18th century that we have. It was a, a book entitled A Concise Natural History of East and West Florida, uh, and it's a few hundred pages long. Uh, like I said, includes a, a really incredible details of the flora and fauna and, and the native peoples, the creeks and seminoles that were living in Florida. Um, but it also included these really detailed maps. And this brings us back to the, uh, the evolution of map making. Um, up to this point, uh, you know, we really didn't have um, a complete detailed map of what Florida looked like, or at least what the coastline of Florida looked like. Um, and Bernard Romans really uh, kind of filled that gap for these early uh, seafarers. Uh, the map he produced was, the original map at least, was uh, about seven feet by four feet wide. It was what we call a wall map, so it would have been uh, hung on a wall, uh, was incredibly detailed. Unfortunately, however, when he went to publish his map and the accompanying uh, description, the uh, Natural History of Florida, um, he couldn't get anybody to fund it. Uh, so he started trying to contract subscribers. He only got about 200 people to pay for it, so he only printed about 200 of these original versions. Um, so the original work itself is incredibly rare and very, very scarce. So uh, for the last uh, century and a half, it really hasn't been um, properly accessed, I would say, by, uh, by Florida history scholars. But uh, within the last few uh, decades, a number of facsimiles have been produced, and that's what we're looking at today. So we have some original, or at least copies of the original manuscript, um, and we're starting to learn more and more about uh, the 18th century Florida that uh, Romans would have, would have seen when he first came here. Now, obviously, maps of Florida have become more sophisticated over the centuries. Why are these maps still important? Well, when we look at uh, especially Romans maps, he made, um, uh, the devil is really in the details. I mean, he marked where a number of shipwrecks uh, that had occurred uh, early on in the, in the 18th century would have occurred. I mean, this kind of information is, is vitally important for underwater ar archaeologists. Um, his detailed observations of uh, Creek Indian life are incredibly important for uh, those studying the, the ethno history of some of the native peoples who didn't leave a written language. Uh, you know, oftentimes we have to read through the lines uh, to understand how these people lived. So uh, even though it's a little bit outdated, um, his views on, on slavery and on, on the native peoples are, are you know, uh, certainly very outdated and, and uh, antiquarian. However, we can still uh, gain and, and ascertain a lot of really great information and pull some great information uh, from his original observations. Great, Ben. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. I don't know where to go. Please tell me what to do. Help me find the road you're on I just need directions home This is Florida Frontiers. Sora Neil Hurston collected oral histories and folk tales throughout Florida. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explains, Zora recorded a lot of interesting information about food. For me, the study of Florida food history is a way of peeling away layers of Florida and learning about different communities that don't always end up in the history books, people who don't always end up in the history books, and traditions that tell us more about the state of Florida and individual communities within that state. That was Dr. Frederick Douglas Opie, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston on Florida Food, Recipes, Remedies, and Simple Pleasures. Dr. Opie also produces the podcast Breaking Bread and studies the history and meaning of food in America.
Here he tells me how one approaches the study of food. To work on food or to study food is, in my sense, it becomes a lens for looking at something. Um, people do the same thing with sports. So food is just one of many lenses that are now used in American studies and a uh, number of other social sciences disciplines. Professor Opie found a way to combine his interest in food and Zora Neale Hurston. Yes, my first book, Hock and Hominy, was uh, published in 2008. And since then, I have uh, morphed myself into strictly uh, writing and teaching about food. So Hurston has been the second book on food, but I feel much more mature as a, as a scholar that works with food because of uh, the time I spent in the Hurston sources. Uh, I've found it an absolutely fascinating way to learn about uh, Florida between the 19th century and 1940, uh, the time that her family moved from Alabama to Florida, and then the time she spent doing field work. So you get a bird's-eye view of uh, working-class culture within the state, and you get access to turpentine camps, sawmill camps, and agricultural workers in a way that is not available uh, or a way that uh, many people just have not done. So Hurston did what many journalists are doing now. She embedded herself in these particular camps, and they were very rough settings. And she came out of there with some nuggets of uh, folklore and culture that I just think are an incredible asset to anybody interested in the state of Florida and its culture and history. I asked Dr. Opie to tell me how often Hurston wrote about food in her own work. I don't think Hurston herself would say, I am dealing with food. She's dealing with people, cultures, and societies. I think the best book is her most well-known one, is Their Eyes Are Watching God. However, food as a metaphor, food as a, a lesson, food as part of a folklore is ubiquitous throughout her writings, whether it's short stories, plays, or the larger novel. Dr. Opie tells me about two dishes that Zora Neale Hurston wrote about in her own work. There's just uh, two in particular related to the state. One would be sugarcane and how sugarcane in the state has, has many different meanings, but uh, I found it interesting how the definition of courting food in the state and having a small piece of sugar cane cut into, you know, maybe two, three inches was uh, something that a suitor would give to his love interest. Uh, similarly, I found the same thing with pig's feet and with peanuts. So the definition of snack food and courting food I thought was really interesting. The other one is that Hurston uh, had a fixation in chicken, and she knew how to make chicken in a number of ways, and at one time in her career when she was really down and out economically, she thought about a catering business that would focus strictly on, on chicken dishes. I followed up with Professor Opie, and I asked him to explain to me why he thought people in the South had put such a meaning on chicken. Just that, uh, you know, FDR uh, talked about the sign of... Uh, of um, prosperity in America is that there would be a chicken in every pot. A chicken has just been one of those things uh, throughout the South that it's a special occasion food. It's the food that you feed the preacher and that you give the preacher if it's your family's turn to host the preacher. It just has a lot of significance. It was a way that a lot of people uh, accumulated capital by selling chicken and, and uh, producing uh, frying chicken and selling it. It's just it loaded with 
the history of the South. That was Dr. Frederick Douglas Opie, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.